Philippians 4. We'll be looking this morning at verses 11 through 13. And the title of our sermon is Ordinary Contentment. And our key words for our worshipers in training are content, peace, and joy. Now, as we continue in our series this morning, looking at what God has called us to as Christians in ordinary life, I want to focus our attention on what is really at the heart of why any talk of the ordinary is usually greeted with deep sighs and yawns. As we've already seen in this series, God has called his people to do some rather mundane things in life. But in order to do those things... To his glory, it takes courage, it takes conviction, it takes perseverance. We looked last week at God's providential working in all of life. So we can rest assured that no matter what our current circumstances are, God is absolutely in control and is bringing all things to a glorious end. And he has designed it for our greatest good as his children. But really, an unwillingness on our part to embrace and even love what's ordinary comes down to a lack of contentment. We live in a world that thrives on what if and if only statements. It's what drives advertising. It's what keeps us going day by day. We're a people willing to spend all kinds of time and money on trying to fulfill our what-ifs and our if-onlys? Why are people willing to spend all of their money in a casino? Why are companies willing to spend millions of dollars on 30-second commercial spots during the Super Bowl? Why do many people go to work and take out loans and clamor for the latest and greatest Because we're all wired to think, what if? What if I had $30 million? What if that was my car? What if I lived in that house? What if I drank that beer or ate that food or wore those clothes or was able to vacation in that place and and play golf with those clubs and hang out with those people? John D. Rockefeller had a net worth that was the equivalent of about $340 billion today. And one time someone asked him, how much money is enough? And his answer, just a little bit more. That's how we think, just a little bit more. I myself, I'm a guy who likes gadgets and technology. I was reminded earlier this week when I watched Apple's unveiling of their new Apple iPhone 6 and 6 Plus and the new Apple Watch, which I think is for teenage girls. But I was thinking about what it really does to my heart. I remember I had a first-generation iPod and a first-generation Amazon Kindle. And when those things came out, they were expensive and they were revolutionary. They changed things. They changed the way we listen to audio. They changed the way we read, no doubt. But after a while, new versions started coming out. They were more compact. They were faster. They were lighter. They had greater aesthetic appeal. They were more ergonomically designed. And then they had color screens. And then they could link to the internet. My gadgets, my iPod, my Kindle, 
I might, have well, might as well have been using an old record player and reading from parchment and scroll. That was so 2005. If only I had the newest one. Even now, I can tell you, I look at my, my iPhone 5 in light of the new ones to come out and say, wow, the screen is not quite as big as that one is. Oh, that new fingerprint technology, that's very helpful. It's thinner, it's lighter. And that camera is going to help me take better selfies. But it's not just about money and stuff for us, is it? Someone else always has a better job than us. Someone else's kids are always smarter and more talented or faster learners or higher, favor, higher, higher favored than us. Uh, than our, our kids are by their peers. Sometimes our spouses don't measure up to someone else's. Our gifts and our talents are never going to be anything compared to our best friend. Or in church life, someone else's church is more perfect. They have better music and better programs and a more gifted preacher. And I will give you that that's probably true. If only my circumstances were better, I need to go there. I need something different than what I have right now. If only people would think the way I do. If only everyone else could see how valuable I am. If only others would listen to me and understand me and agree with me and do what I tell them to do. If only, what if only, what if, if only, what if, if only, we're locked in this treadmill of discontentment. So we carry massive amounts of debt. We're constantly stressed. We have anxiety and depression. We bury ourselves in addictions because we need more and more to satisfy our cravings that never seem to go away. And we fight and we bicker and we grumble and we complain and we live each day for tomorrow. Tomorrow can't come quick enough. But then it comes and it's not quite what we expected it to be. And so in our lives, uh, contentment seems elusive. It seems like this unattainable, utopian dream that never really happens. No peace, no joy, and then we die mad that we didn't get to live the life that we really wanted. Does that sound familiar? Let's, let's be honest. We all feel it in our hearts, don't we? We all feel this twinge of discontentment with our lives, but God calls us to be something far different as his people. God calls us to some really basic ideas that end up being quite countercultural and, dare I say, even radical in this world. Things like considering it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Joy in the midst of trials. Things like being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. How? Why? Things like not being anxious and trusting in God alone. But I have to be in control, right? Things like submitting to authority and loving our neighbors and bearing one another's burdens and praying without ceasing. All of it boils down to this. It is possible to have sweet, inward, quiet, gracious orientation in my life which submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly providence in every circumstance of my life, no matter how wonderful or how terrible it appears to be. That's contentment, and that's what we're looking at this morning. 
I want to focus our attention on a very familiar passage today. A passage that could very easily be a part of our Sunday school class on the most misused verses in the Bible. When people say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I want to say, really, all things? Does that include reading this verse in context? So we're going to look at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi this morning, and we're going to start in Philippians 4 and verse 11. But first, I want to frame the context of Paul's writing for us. You may very well know that Paul is writing to the Philippians while he's sitting in prison. Very likely, he is in Rome around 62 AD. The church at Philippi has a special significance to Paul. It was the first church that he founded in Europe. He likely visited the Philippians a few times after his initial departure, and they maintained this active support financially of his ministry. So he's addressing the community of believers. He's calling them to continue to live together upon the riches of God in humility and unity as pilgrims and strangers in a fallen world that he might make his glory known. But very straightforwardly, the meaning of what Paul says in verse 13 is laid out for us in the preceding verses. So we'll begin in Philippians 4 and verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, there's a very key word I want to draw our attention to in verse 11, and it should rock us all a little bit. It's the word, in my translation, whatever. Paul writes that he has learned that in whatever situation he is in, that he is to be content. So a few things here for us. First is this. Paul says he has learned this to be true. It wasn't something he inherently or intuitively knew. It wasn't something that came natural to him. It was something he had to learn. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Contentment in every condition is a great art, a spiritual mystery. It is to be learned and to be learned as a mystery. And those who are trained in this art have learned a deep mystery. It is, it is indeed a mystery to the world and perhaps to many of us this morning, this idea of contentment. I want to suggest to us this morning that contentment is not an elusive utopian ideal, but it is, a mis- it is mysterious because it can only be learned by those who are united to Christ. Only those who are living and striving for godliness in Christ Jesus can say, this world is not my portion, only Christ is. Burroughs writes, a a little in the world will content a Christian for his passage through life, but all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion. Have we, brothers and sisters, have we learned this profound mystery of contentment? It's when our hearts cry out to God in prayer, in light of our circumstances, considering God's providence, like we looked at last week, saying, God, no matter what is going on in my life, I know you have me here right now for your good, for your glory, and you can do with me whatever 
you will. So in other words, a content Christian isn't someone who rides the roller coaster of circumstances that come our way. And so here's a good question for us to ask ourselves. In the midst of a really bad day, a really bad day at work or when our kids just won't listen and the dirty dishes seem to keep stacking themselves up and the laundry's multiplying, can I look at it all and say, I'm content? Now forget days. What about seasons in life? There are things that will come into our lives like wrecking balls. Some of the things, some of these things are family together right now struggling with. Job loss, tension and strife in marriage, infertility, rebellious children, financial strain, health issues. We have to be able, even in those seasons of life, to ask ourselves, is Christ enough? Ian Murray is one of my favorite biographers, and he writes wonderfully about many of the heroes of our faith. He wrote about Jonathan Edwards, and he explained the circumstances around Edwards being fired from the church that he had faithfully pastored for many years because he stood on some convictions about the Lord's Supper. And so Edwards was just let go. He was fired. One of the the greatest theologians God has ever produced is said that he's the greatest mind America has ever produced. And he was fired. And he didn't lash out at the church in a verbal tirade. He didn't write nasty letters to the editor of the local paper to condemn them. He didn't call them a bunch of unbelieving pagans. Ian Murray records an eyewitness account of someone close to Edwards after he was fired. And this man wrote this of him. Edwards received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismissal. When your circumstances seem upside down and backwards, can the same sort of thing be said of you? I love how he said that. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good. Jonathan Edwards' contentment wasn't wrapped up in his circumstances. It was rooted in a heart of joy out of reach of the enemy. It wasn't about his job. It wasn't about having money to provide for himself and his family. And he had a lot of kids. It wasn't about knowing he was going to get a paycheck and knowing he was going to be doing something he enjoyed or knowing that people liked him. Plain and simple, Jonathan Edwards was content because he believed that the Lord did all things on purpose and all that he did was for his good and he could rest in him and not worry and he could be without anxiety and without fear. It was Christ, not the world. It was Christ that was his portion. So he was content. He learned the mystery Those who know contentment are those who will freely and joyfully submit to the will of God in our lives. Where does grumbling and complaining come from? Discontent. Grumbling and complaining is kicking and screaming against the will of God. A truly content person doesn't 
covet that which he doesn't, doesn't have. But he says, thank God for all that he has given me. A truly content person doesn't get jealous when they see others prosper while their circumstances may stay the same or even get worse. But they turn their heart toward God knowing that Christ is their portion and has all that they need. And it's knowing that God is always good to us. So you see, the mystery that is learned is that contentment isn't simply tolerating our circumstances. It's freely and joyfully submitting to God's will no matter what comes our way. Paul expands this idea in verse 12. I know how both to make do with little and I know how to have an abundance. In everything and in all things I have learned the secret both to being filled and to be hungry, both to have an abundance and to go without. It sounds easy, right? Not so much. Paul explains that he has run the whole gamut of life. He's had to make do with little. He has had a lot. He's been filled. He has been hungry. He's been in abundance. He's lived in poverty. And in all of these things, he says there's a secret to be learned. Or in Burroughs' language, a mystery to behold. And that is that I can be content in the midst of every trial I face, every heartache that comes my way, every bout with disease and famine and distress. But here's the kicker. I can also be content when my cup overflows with blessing. Because, you know, we are so often discontent, not when we're without, but when we're surrounded with blessings we start to sound a lot like Rockefeller. It's never enough. But is it possible when I have all that I need and much, much more that I can be content with what I have instead of clamoring for the next best thing? Here's the second thing I want us to see in verse 11. Paul says, I am to be content. In other words, it's not that he can or that he should consider being content or that seeking contentment is a good idea, it's an imperative. As a Christian, it is an imperative that we learn the mystery of contentment. Another way to say it is quite simple. Discontentment in our circumstances is a sin. Now, we're going to think about longings and desires in a bit and how they can be good and useful things. But at the base level, we have to recognize that God is calling us to a life of contentment. And when we are not content in our circumstances, what are we doing? At the very least, we're breaking the 10th commandment. We're we're coveting something. We want something other than what we currently have. We're longing for the greener grass of another pasture. You see, God's commanding that we are content in his care and in his provision. And contentment is a freedom from external need because of an utter confidence in God's adequate provision. There's this intrinsic relationship between being content and our faith in Christ. If you have faith, you have all that you need. Conversely, if a man... If a a man doesn't have Christ, he has nothing. He'll be in constant want. Now, being content doesn't mean that we won't be sad when we experience true loss. We will, and that's okay. But there's joy to be found in the midst of it. 
It doesn't mean we won't have wants, and those wants can be totally acceptable. But the question we have to ask is, am I seeking this as a means of contentment? If so, I'm looking in all the wrong places. I need to be content in my current circumstances. When we covet something, we have an earnest desire to get it, no matter what it takes. It's the kind of thing that happens when we hear people say, well, God just wants me to be happy. Or, I know it's wrong, but it's what I have to do for myself. We learn in James 1 that our desires can lure and entice us. And when Christ is not our portion, and when we're not submitting ourselves to God, it leads to sin and eventually leads to death. Think of when Satan enticed Eve. He didn't have to make something up. He worked within the context of her own desires. Adam and Eve enjoyed unhindered communion with God, but Satan convinced Eve that the source of her contentment was lacking. There was more that she could know than God himself. So what did she do? She compared her circumstances with God's, and she removed her eyes from him, and she turned into herself. She coveted God's divine attributes, not realizing that he was willfully and joyfully sharing them with her all along. So here's the lens we need to be looking through this morning. There are a few sins that God hates more than our discontentedness. It hinders our ability to be faithful members of God's church. It keeps us from being sacrificial parents and spouses and children. It prohibits us from being godly employees in our workplaces. It really is a root sin to so much. Why do people steal because they're discontent with their circumstances. Why do people commit adultery and look at pornography? Because they're not content in whatever their current status is, even if they're married or single, whatever it is. Why do people murder? Because they're not content to see their enemies enjoy the blessings of God's grace in this life. And because this is true, in our homes, there should be few things that we deal with more readily than discontentedness. In small children, that's what whining is, right? Whining is discontent. In teenagers, it's when they have these loud sighs and their eye rolls and their bodies kind of flail around. In adults, it's in our grumbling and in our complaining because it's an affront to God. We need to recognize That when we are complaining about every circumstance under the sun, that we are not resting in his providence. And to be clear, this is for everyone underneath our roof in our homes, whether it's just you or if there's seven or eight of you, no matter who it is, we need to take swift action when it comes to grumbling and complaining because it's discontentedness. It's a covetous heart saying, What God has done and is doing for me right now is not enough. I want more. I want it my way. You know, pastorally, one of the things I'm increasingly convinced of is that perhaps the greatest threat that faces our children is not drugs and promiscuity, 
but the seeds of Christless discontentment that are planted in their hearts from day one if it's not rightly addressed. A child-centered home where a family's life revolves around that tiny individual will lead to discontentment in their little hearts. And eventually, they're not going to get what they want. And when they've been raised to be able to call the shots, what to eat, what to wear, when to go to bed, when to play, when to do chores, what the family does based on their schedule and their wants, not spanking them when they disobey, one day somebody's going to have to tell them no. Somebody is going to call them to submit to authority. And all this discontentment will settle in because all of their lives they've been able to say, I call the shots. Everyone has always told me yes. Brothers and sisters who are here this morning, if you have children living in your home, please hear me on this. First, if you think you have a child-centered home, repent of it and work diligently to center your home on Christ instead. It may seem loving and helpful right now to center your life on your children, but it's absolutely destructive. And it's actually all the rage right now. Letting children call the shots but it runs completely contrary to biblical wisdom and faithfulness to God. Secondly, discontentment in your home must receive a swift, decisive sentence or your child's heart will be given over to what is evil. And don't let yourself off the hook either. Be accountable. Admit when you're discontent. Repent in front of your children before God. You will be teaching them that just because we have urges and temptations and desires, it doesn't mean that we're always free to chase after them because we think they're going to make us happy. We can teach them the mystery of contentment from very early on when we're seeking it ourselves. And again, consider Paul. How could he sit in prison, suffering regularly from hunger and exposure, knowing he might be killed, and say, in whatever situation, I am content? And perhaps thus far you've said, fine, I need to be content. It's important, it's vital. To not be content is sinful, it's destructive. I get that. But how do I do it? Well, Paul gives us an answer a little bit earlier in chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he identifies the secret to being content as having our eyes on the prize. Paul said this of his own life, Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have considered lost because of Christ. More than that, I even consider all things to be lost because of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for the sake of whom I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. When Paul, what Paul saw in Jesus is what the man in Jesus' parable saw in the field. You know, the, you know the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it and covered it up, then in all of his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, 10 minutes before that man saw that treasure, would he have been content to sell everything he had to go buy a field? No, not a chance. But when he saw it, when he saw the treasure, he went to the auctioneer. It was time to sell it all. What was the difference? He saw the treasure. 
The secret to contentment in whatever situation is seeing the treasure that trumps all else. It's found in the very ordinary means of grace that God has given to us that we might know him profoundly and experience deep and lasting communion with him. And so you see, Paul is teaching us that yes, indeed, discontentment is a sin to lay aside in our lives, but discontentment is also a gauge for us. It's a monitor of our hearts to show us when our spiritual eyes have strayed from the treasure, when we've started to look elsewhere. When discontentment shows up, we need to be honest. We need to stop and look at what our eyes are really fixed on and with repentance to focus our gaze on the real lasting treasure, which is Christ himself. We all know our hearts enough. We can admit that it isn't just something that will happen. It's the very reason for verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you see, this this verse isn't about winning a game or passing a test or getting a promotion. It's about no matter what your situation is in life, in Christ we can be content. How different our lives could be if we would more readily rely upon the strength that God provides and has given to us. If we would quit worrying about our needs and that we would find our contentment in him. What a joy it would be to come to a place in our lives together when we know that we can trust Christ to provide for us. Where we can rest in his strength for any and all things. So Paul is teaching us about having the strength to be content when we're facing those moments in life when physical resources are at a minimal It's about having faith in God who provides, the God who providentially works in every aspect of our lives and has designed all the circumstances for our ends, the God who sees and knows our needs and has promised to meet them all in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for the ordinary Christian? It means the next time I am tempted to go down the path of saying, I just need to get that raise, and then then I will stop and say, It's a smokescreen. Be content in the job that you have right now. When those feelings arise in my heart that say, I deserve better, in Christ I'm reminded, no, in fact, you deserve much worse. But Christ is your portion, and he's all you need. Paul didn't have a house. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a big wardrobe or a closet full of shoes. He didn't have degrees on his wall or citations pinned on his chest. He didn't have friends and fellowship with all, uh, with all that many people. He didn't have a wife to comfort him when he was sad. All in all, Paul traveled pretty light. He had a few clothes, maybe some writing instruments, a few scrolls of the Bible, some parchment to write on, not much more. And yet Paul was content. What a lesson for us. And here's the point in all of this. Day by day, as we've talked about, we are confronted with some pretty generic, mundane, ordinary things that have to happen in life. And if we're all honest, we'll probably say that most of the time we tackle them with a, with a lot less what could be called joy and zeal. But you see, it's in the midst of these very things that we're called to be reminded that our Uh, that on our own, we're not very much, but in Christ, we can be content no matter what. 
And I assure you, if, if you don't know contentment here and now, you won't know it by assuming you're becoming a super Christian by selling everything away and living among lost people groups of the world. If you don't know contentment now, you're certainly not going to find it by adopting 12 children tomorrow or going to live in a homeless tent community for a year. This sort of live-on-the-edge life for Jesus is a smokescreen for most people. Yes, there are those called to live among the lost people groups of the world. And yes, adoption is glorious and magnificent and wonderful and a necessary thing. And yes, the homeless need care and compassion and help. But listen, if you're not content with where you are right now in your life, do you really think you're going to find it when all those things are stripped away? Not a chance. Because you see, the issue is the heart. Our hearts, the gaze of our heart is set on the wrong thing. And then no amount of radical Christianity is going to change that more than anything else in this world. So if, not, if for nothing else at all, we can at the very least thank God that we have health and we have the ability to do the dishes and the laundry and to vacuum the floor and to mow the grass and to fill out spreadsheets for our boss or clean the toilet in our office or fill up the car with gas. We can be content and find physical strength to endure all things because it is Christ who strengthens us. And when we are content to rely on him, he is truly glorified because his strength is on display. That's what Paul realized in his life, right? In his weakness, God was made to be seen as most strong. So a few practical applications for us, and then we'll be done. When I'm tempted to discontentment, what should I do? First, I need to stop. When you recognize discontentment, the first thing to do seems very simple. Stop what you're doing. It sounds easy, but we all know at the heart of the moment, it's very difficult. Stop grumbling and complaining. Stop sulking or stomping around the house. Stop the harsh and critical words toward others who aren't behaving the way you demand of them. What is the source of your discontentment? We have to ask ourselves that, and then we need to stop. Is it Pinterest or Facebook, the mommy blogs, the golf channel, job postings, whatever it is, whatever is leading you to be discontent in your life, stop chasing after it. And then secondly, we need to look. Look at what you're looking at. You're discontent because you perceive an obstacle between you and your prize. Name the prize you want. It's likely that it's not Jesus. Now, can our longings and desires be good and useful? Absolutely. If we are continuously burdened by our job, is it necessarily wrong to want to find other work that pays more or that works better with our schedule or is more along the lines of what we'd like to be doing? No. However, how does that longing affect my current work? Is it becoming A discontentedness. Am I coveting something I don't have and may never have, and as a result, my ability to rightly do what I'm called to do right here and now is being affected? Be honest with yourselves. Our desires can lead us in a few directions. And sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. However, we have to be very diligent to make sure 
that we're staying focused on Jesus and our motivations are to continually glorify God. Third, we need to think. We need to stop and look. And third, we need to think. Regaining proper focus on the prize only comes through right thinking. What we ponder is what we perceive. We are discontent because we've been meditating on the wrong things. And we're becoming weighed down with frustration. Are you standing at the sink, scraping a pan, and you just want to go to bed? Are you watching your neighbor out the back window? They're building a new pool and a screened-in porch. Are you seeing your coworker get a promotion? Perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps maybe you've seen someone who's really going out on a limb as a Christian and giving it all away to give themselves to another people group. And you just aren't satisfied with your situation. Yours is too bland. It's too boring. Maybe you just keep thinking, if only I had more money to give away to fix all the problems I see. Ah, you won't. You can't. It's time to pick up the easy yoke of delight in Jesus by doing what Paul instructs the Philippians to do in chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We must be thinking rightly if we are going to find contentment. Fourth, we need to repent. As God continues to sanctify us, the Holy Spirit reveals areas of sin in our lives. Addressing an outward action of sin is only a temporary measure. We need to dig down deep to the roots embedded in our heart. And so often that root of all of our sin is discontentment. And so in prayer, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to not only convict us of sin and give us the power to repent, but to stay our hearts on Jesus, the only true source of contentment. Fifth, we need to practice gratitude. Do you pray prayers of thanksgiving before the Lord each day? When all of your world seems to be crashing down around you, do you spend time first meditating on and thanking God for all of his great and wonderful provision in your life before you ask him to move mountains? Our hearts are so prone to hardness. We need to keep them soft by remembering the true source of every good and perfect gift. Sixth, we need to see life through the life-altering reality of the gospel. When we're discontent, we forget that in Christ, we have received the greatest blessing of all. Because of Jesus' perfect life, his sinner's death and burial and glorious resurrection, as a child of God, my existence isn't temporary, it's everlasting. I need a reminder that because Jesus died in my place, my joy and my contentment cannot be wrapped up in this world and my circumstances because I am made for another world altogether. It's not possible to have my heart satisfied by the things of this world. Don't lose sight of our eternal reward. If we do, we're giving up and we're giving in and we're settling for something so much less than what we were designed for. And friends, there are some of you here today who know nothing but a life of discontentment. 
If you're a Christian, I hope that God's word is really changing you today and that the Holy Spirit will bring you to a place of conviction and repentance and that you might start living upon God instead of seeking to live upon the circumstances of life. But there are those of you here this morning who will never know contentment because you live life in opposition to God, in complete rejection of Christ. And unless you recognize that the secret of contentment is found in Christ, all of the circumstances that you encounter are going to dictate how you feel and what you do and where you go, and they will always change. You will be bitter and angry. You will alienate yourselves from other. You will find it impossible to reconcile. You will never find satisfaction in your job, and joy and peace in life will be elusive. You will live for tomorrow. You'll learn that the tomorrow you want never comes. And so for those of you who live lives apart from Christ, completely discontent, I'm pleading with you to turn to Jesus. He's the secret to contentment. Is only in Christ that we can wake up in the morning to go through our ordinary, normal, typical routine, sometimes sad, sometimes devastating, sometimes very hard days, and yet in the midst of it all, find peace and joy. I don't need to think of new ways to make my life more exciting or on the edge. I need to know that Christ has purchased salvation on behalf of his people. And when I'm in him, I have all the riches of heaven as my own and can gladly with great joy and peace rest in him. So let's confess with the Apostle Paul. What shall we say to all of these circumstances in life? If God is for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, what circumstances in life can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Do you face trial? Enemies? Death? Are you being falsely accused? God is the judge and the justifier. Christ is interceding for you. God loves you. He has rescued you from darkness. He's bringing you into the glorious light. What should we fear? Why should anything make us anxious? How can we be discontent? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor health, nor, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we can find our contentment in. That God loves us and has purchased us in Christ Jesus. That is all we need. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are so kind. You are so good to us that you can remind us 
that in all of life, even in the most difficult, darkest times of life, that you are for us. And nothing in this world can stand against us. And so by the strength provided in Christ, I pray that we, as your people, can find contentment in all things. Lord, help us to rightly discern our motives, our feelings, our restlessness. And Lord, perhaps there are times when these things are good and right, pushing us to achieve new and greater things. And yet help us to look at our current circumstances and to be content where you have us. Knowing that our greatest hope will never be found in this life. No matter what we strive for and attain, nothing we attain here and now is to even be compared with that which will be ours eternally. It will not satisfy the way we assume it will. It will not bring the happiness and joy and peace that we are longing for. Only Christ, only Christ will give us all things. And so by the strength provided in Christ, may you help us all to consider our current circumstances and to be content, knowing that you have us right where we are for your purposes, that you would be glorified and that a greater good will be in store for us. We love you, O oh God, and we thank you for your care for each of us. May we not take it for granted, but rejoice in the God who is there and who is working all things together for our good. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.